Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Well, when we look at the crucifixion of Christ, you know, and, and, and I, and this was really, as I matured in my Christian life, I find myself spending more and more time at the foot of the cross, contemplating that. What was the price paid for me? And I think in a way that really separates, if you want to think about it, what separates the true possessor from the false professor? Well, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, what did all of the true believers, where, where did they have to go at some point? They had to go through what? Remember that allegory? They had to go through the wicked gate. And they had to make a stop at what? The cross. The cross. And I remember ignorant, yet. Yeah, Pilgrim asked ignorant, well, well, you know, I came in over the wall and I just got on the road. Did you go by the wicked gate? No. Did you go by the cross? No. And I love that old hymn about the way the cross leads home. Um, it's at the cross where my Savior died. And we need to sing that. We need to preach that. We, there are people who say, well, we don't like this slaughterhouse religion. Well, I'll tell you what. That's the only religion that's going to get you to heaven. You get rid of the blood of Christ, you don't have a heaven. You don't have a salvation. You don't have a Savior. I think the true Christian, when he looks at the cross, he, he sees that it should have been me. They are not him. And I often find myself asking Christ, you know, and Again, my, my time on the way into work in the morning, my prayer time, it's like, why did you take my place? And the only answer I've ever gotten was, well, I just wanted to, I guess. And that's the best answer you're going to get. But, but you contemplate the cross. The agony of the cross was not in the physical torment it was in the separation from the Father. You have an eternal being. And that's, that's the thing, see, we don't understand. You have an eternal being. What, Christ exists outside the boundaries of space and time and existence as we know it. And for three hours, he was separated from the Father. Now that is an infinite separation that we'll never understand. But that's the price that was required to pay our redemption. And that was the only way. That was the only way. What more could he done? Could Christ God have done? Nothing. He did the greatest thing possible. And that's why, you know, you remember when we were talking through Romans, if God did the greater thing, which would be to die for us, he can do the lesser thing, which is to keep us. Right? That's easy compared to what he already did. What Christ found in the garden is the horror, when he contemplated the horror of the cross, it was, wait a minute, I'm going to be separated from the Father. 
And until we get to heaven, until we enjoy the presence of God, until we enjoy what it's like to be in His presence, we won't even have any notion of what that possibly could be. We don't. And I think we're going to spend the rest of eternity trying to sort that out and we're never going to get there. What do you find? Well, the disciples are asleep and Judas, of course, knows exactly where Christ is and leads the mob to Christ. And how does he betray Christ? And I say, well, why did he betray Christ with a kiss? I mean, didn't the people know who Christ was? Well, these were ruffians. Many of them, they probably didn't know what he looked like, necessarily. They didn't have photographs in those days. You know, they didn't have a wanted poster up around Jerusalem with Christ's picture on it. Most didn't know what Christ looked like. Like when they tried to see him, though, they all fell back as if they were dead. Yep. He let them know, I'm still in control. Yeah, I'm still in charge. <laughs> and of course, Peter, what does Peter do? Peter brings out a sword and whacks off Malchus's ear. And this is, an, you know, you got there's a party that's got to likes Peter, you know? Yeah. I mean, in the presence of Christ, Peter says, I'll take on the whole Roman army if I have to. He's not afraid. Now, when Christ is not around, what is he? He's the world's number one chicken. But in the presence of Christ, I mean, stop and think about it. Here's the boat out on the sea, tossing and turning. Christ comes walking along. And Peter says, if that be you, let me what? Come on. Now, the other 11 guys, they're, they're too scared to get out of the boat. Peter's on the water walking out there. Why? Because in the presence of Christ, he was invincible. Without Christ, he was a big zero. Of course, what does Christ do? Christ heals the ear of Malchus. What could be... What would go through your mind if you were Malchus? You're sent out to arrest this guy who's supposedly the number one dangerous criminal in Israel. He was the priest servant, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. One of his followers whacks your ear off. You're there, you're bleeding all over the place, and Christ reaches down, picks up the ear, and puts it back on, and you're fully healed. And you continue to arrest him. What, what? Hello. You wonder sometimes, don't you? Yeah. You would think it, it would have to create some kind of conflict within your own spirit. Unless you were so blinded by your assessment of who Jesus was that you were just... And see, that's what unbelief is. Unbelief says, I don't care what the evidence is. I'm not going to believe. And that's what the problem was with the religious leaders. They didn't care what... The, it, didn't, it didn't matter what Christ did. It was not going to be enough. They were not believed. So Christ is led away to his arrest in the unjust trials. And, you know, there are several of these. Um, here's some of the rules that were broken. Jewish law required a public trial. Christ were private. What is it, why do they require a public trial? So that evidence could be presented, that, that witnesses could be brought forward. Christ was in a kangaroo court behind closed walls. It was never a public trial. Jewish law required a person had a right to self-defense. Did Christ have any defense? Nope. nope. 
Jewish law required no one could be condemned without sufficient witnesses. The Jews had to do what? They had to dig them up. Make their own. And, and they had to go through a bunch of witnesses to get two people that actually had the same story. That's how bad it was. Jewish law required that no trial be conducted at night. Christ had six of them at night. Jewish law forbade the private interrogation of accused person. Christ was privately interrogated by Annas. You could not be privately interrogated. It had to be public interrogation. Jewish law required that a person be arrested only on the witness of two or three. Christ had no accusers until the Sanhedrin found two false ones. Nobody arrested. I mean, just stop and think about it. Uh, Annas had no legal authority to question Christ. Yet he was the first one Christ met. He was not even the high priest. He had no right to even talk to Christ. Jewish law required that no one could be tried outside the hall of judgment. Christ was tried at the home, the private residence of Caiaphas. The testimony of the false witnesses lacked date, time, and location. Their testimony was not admissible by Jewish law. According to Jewish law, if you were to testify in court, you had to give a time, a date, a location. I was here at this hour of the day, at this spot, when I heard this. Didn't have that. According to Jewish law, the Sanhedrin can only act as judges and jury, not prosecution, yet they are the ones that sought false witnesses in order to condemn Christ. It's like the judge of the court accusing the accused and then digging up witnesses to lend false witness against the accused. We'd call that a railroad job, wouldn't we? Pilate had Christ crucified, although he pronounced Christ innocent. On several occasions, he violated Roman law, having Christ crucified. Here's the point, and, and so you stop and uh, you, you need to stop and see the 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 brilliance of God in this. He set things up such that when Christ was crucified, it was, should have been obvious to everyone the unjustness of this. This was a no-brainer kind of thing. And why did God do it that way? What did God want to expose? The depth of the hypocrisy. The depth of the hypocrisy and wickedness of man. God sometimes operates like that, doesn't he? Yeah. He lets out the rope. Yeah. That's what's happening in the last days. He just keeps letting out the rope. Why? Because he wants... So, so when judgment falls, no one's sitting there saying, wait a minute, what, what's God doing? I mean, he popped vain pretty quick here, didn't he? No, God gives plenty of time to repent, to hang yourself. And that's what God's doing here. What were the Jewish trials? Well, the first trial had Christ before Annas. That was an illegal trial. And then after he was before Annas, Christ was taken before Caiaphas, who was... I always get them backwards. Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law. That's the way it worked out. So this is a family affair. Then Christ is brought before the Sanhedrin. They rouse the Sanhedrin out of bed to get them to come down and have a trial in the middle of the night. Why are they doing this in such a hurry? Why did, Christ, why did God want it done in a hurry? Well, he's got to die at 3 o'clock, so we need to get this ball rolling. So what, Christ, so what God did, and this is the thing to understand, 
God used the wicked intentions of mankind to do what? To, do, to, to accomplish what? His will. Did God make these guys do what they did? Did God? No. God allowed them, allowed their hatred of Christ's full expression to fulfill His schedule. You realize of all the people that have ever lived, those Jewish religious leaders are the most culpable for what happened. Yep. Because they were there, they saw it all, and not only that, even after the resurrection, God even expressed to them through those dead people that came back and went into the holy city and testified of Jesus. He never left one stone unturned to prove how much they were going to reject him. Yep. Which really, I don't want to put it, it shows the depth of human wickedness. I mean, and God's very good at exposing it. He's exposing it for what it is, right? And our problem is, you know, we think, well, you know, I made a mistake. I turned left and I should have turned right. God's saying, no, you're so wicked. You're wicked to the core of your, of your being, basically. You're so wicked that it's hard to express just how wicked you are. And God exposed the wickedness of mankind here. And then, of course, um, that's the Jewish trials of Christ. But why did why did the Jews bring him in on the why did the Jews have him uh, appear before Rome? Because they're the only ones they could execute. Yeah, they couldn't. They, the Jews couldn't execute criminals. Romans could. So you have three Roman trials. All right. First uh, trial was Christ before Pilate. Now, Pilate and the Jews really did not get along very well. Pilate thought, you know, he, he didn't like being the governor there. And uh, he had really irritated the Jews on several occasions, almost to the point that Rome was about to recall him because of the way he treated the Jews with total disdain for their religious sensitivities. But all, the first trial, all Pilate did was, you know, what are you, oh, you're a Galilean. I don't have to deal with you. You're Herod's problem because you're a Galilean. So what does Pilate do? He sends Christ down before Herod. Herod finally meets Christ. And what does Herod want him to do? Yeah, do a miracle. Herod is probably one of the, the Herods are probably the most pathetic family in the entire scripture. They're probably occupying a cell next to Annas and Caiaphas. But all Herod, he, he heard the miracles of Christ. He wanted him to do a trick. And Christ had no tolerance for Herod. And of course, uh, when that didn't work, what did Herod do? Herod sent him back to Pilate. Now, Herod and Pilate didn't like each other, but they became friends over this one. I can imagine becoming friends over killing an innocent man who was the son of God, the creator of the universe. Wow. I wonder if they're still friends in hell. 
Then the third trial, Christ before Pilate again. What does Pilate try to do here? He tries every way possible to avoid killing Christ. He has Christ scourged, which is almost to the point of death, hoping to see the beaten and bloodied body of Christ. Maybe the Jews would not want him crucified, but they would not shut up. And finally, what does he do? He condemns Christ. Although he finds Christ innocent, he condemns Christ. Why did he do that? His job was on the line. He was basically put on notice by Caesar that if you have another riot, you're out of a job, buddy. I remember when the Jews said, if you don't do this, you're no friend of Caesar. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were blackmailing Pilate into doing this. And they succeeded. Pilate was more interested in his job than his eternal soul. And of course he has... This. He, he had made several mistakes. Well, one of the mistakes, uh, he, he displayed eagles, Roman eagle on banners. When he marched into Jerusalem um, after being given the, the governorship, he had the Roman standard, which bore an eagle. Of course, that started a riot. Why? Because it was an idolatrous sign to the Israelites. He uh, took money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct for Jerusalem. He needed to fund water supply to the city, so he took money out of the temple. Well, that was a normal Roman practice to do. The temples in those days were the banks. But that really infuriated the Jews. And then he had the image of Tiberius put on shields of his soldiers, and that really caused a problem because now you've got a graven image on something. I mean, he, he just was not very, very sensitive. And historically, he was finally banished to Gaul, which was modern-day France. And he died in exile in Gaul. That was the end of Pilate. What about the crucifixion? Well, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. Where was it? The Golgotha, the place of the skull? And if you've all seen the Mel Gibson movie, that probably does as good a job as any is portraying what Christ went through. He carried the cross beam, not the whole cross, but the cross beam to Golgotha. And... Uh, Nailed there, hung out, and he was hung up naked. He was stripped of all his clothing. It's part of the shame of being crucified as a criminal. You were crucified nude, um, in agony for all to see. And why did he do that? Say that again. Why did he do that? Who? Christ. Died for you and me. It's hard to think about that without just, you know, I don't get it. I'll be honest, I, I, don't, I don't get that kind of love. Why would he do that? Because who should have been hanging on the cross? We should have been hanging there. You see, that's the important concept. And we talk about theologically of substitution. What does substitution mean? He took my place. He paid the penalty for me. 
His death on the cross was not as an example. What? I don't know who came up with that idea. That's a screwy idea, right? He died as an example. That doesn't. That's no help. He died in my place. He took the penalty for me. He paid the price I should have paid. And he had to die as a bloody sacrifice. Why? Because that was what was predicted. Did Christ bleed to death on the cross? He didn't die by bleeding. How did he die? He gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. This is a voluntary sacrifice here. Um, it's interesting because when he died, they were surprised that he had died so quickly. Why is that? Well, he was a healthy specimen of a man. He had never sinned. I mean, he was in perfect health. And not only that, but it was not uncommon for their times, criminals to take three days to die. This was an agonizing slow death. We understand... This was probably one of the most agonizing slow deaths you could devise. But they, you know, they, they beat him a lot more worse than they did the other ones, I think. Well, he was definitely beat. He was definitely, but understand, he gave up the ghost. Yeah, he gave up the ghost. And what it, well, remember when he said, I lay down my life, I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it, take it up again. Yeah. Take it up. He, he, he didn't die as a victim. And, and, and who did Christ die for? Christ died to placate what? The wrath of God. Christ died for God. Uh, Christ's death on the cross was not a ransom he paid to Satan. That's a screwy no notion. That somehow Christ has a bias back from Satan. Does Satan own us? No. No, he doesn't. That's, that's, a, that's a dumb concept. There's no ransom to Satan or theory. That's called the ransom to Satan theory of the atonement. Christ died to pay the penalty of our sin to who? The Father. To himself. And here's, here's the thing, just an aside. One of the great doctrines that are, that's really becoming under attack today is the concept of the atonement. That, that's the latest thing that is in, that, that's uh, contended for, I guess. And there are some in the, in the so-called evangelical communities, particularly the um, emergent church boys. And one of the big proponents is Brian McLaren. Ever hear of him? Well, don't get into his books and read it. Um, but he basically has said that, you know, this concept of a substitutionary atonement by Christ on the cross is equivalent, in his words, to cosmic child abuse. God, why would God punish his own son for our sin? That, that's child abuse to me. That's what he said. How'd you respond to something like that? Well, he doesn't. I mean, he's, he, by the way, Brian McLaren is not going to be in heaven if he believes what he says. But what's the problem with that thinking that, that God is somehow abusive by killing his own son for my sin? You just the name of God. You just defame God. That also makes God. In what sense? Did God the Father make Christ die for me? Well, you, no, no. 
So if he didn't make Christ die, who made Christ die? He made Christ. Christ made himself. That, that is one of the most idiotic statements on the planet. God committed cosmic child abuse by punishing his son for our sin. Wait a minute. His son voluntarily took our place. God, nobody made Christ die for me. Yeah, that's about what it is. And he he voluntarily did that. Christ, it's not like in eternity past, Christ lost the coin toss and had to become the savior of the world. God had this grand scheme, and Christ gladly, willingly, joyfully, with anticipation. Did this. Not because God the Father forced him into doing it. That's silly. Christ took our place. He paid the penalty for us. The only valid view of the, of the atonement is the substitutionary atonement. And we call that the penal substitution. That's a very thing. In what sense is it the penal substitution? He was punished for me. It was a penal thing. It was not he died as an example or you know he died as an inspiration. Or that, that, that is hogwash. He died in my place. He took the penalty for me. There was no substitute. He, substitute. he was my substitute. And there were no other substitutes that could have done it. He's the only one that could have done it. It's called the penal substitution theory. And Christ died as a public. Here's what I was talking about here. Christ did not pay a ransom to Satan for us. He did not die um, as a moral influence. It's called the moral influence theory. Christ did not only satisfy the justice of God, much like a person paying a debt. That's the commercial or satisfaction theory. Like Christ just paid the debt that, that God had out. He, he paid the outstanding debt. No, Christ took our place. He not only paid the debt of sin, he became sin for us. He died the death we should have died. Yes. And here's the other thing. Christ did not, in essence, become sin. That's, that's the word of faith, boys. Copeland, Hagen, Hickey, Benny Hinn, those guys. They say, well, Christ became, in essence, sin. Could God become, in essence, sin? No. no. It's impossible. But what could he have done? You could have had to sin what? Imputed. To him. As though he did it. Although he didn't do it, as though he didn't become sin, it is as though he did commit the sin. You understand the difference? Mm -hmm. He did not, in essence, become sin. Because God can't sin. become sin. That goat on the day of atonement, was that, was that goat, the scapegoat, did that scapegoat in essence become sin? No. No, but it took upon himself what? The sin of the people. It was imputed to that goat. My sin, and this is the idea of the substitution, all my sin 
is imputed or credited to Christ. All of Christ's righteousness is what? Credited to me. So when I stand before God, what do I have? The infinite, holy righteousness of Christ. That's imputation, which, by the way, is a very important theological concept. Um, let's go look at the burial. Why is the burial of Christ important? Proves he was dead, right? I mean, you don't bury someone who's not dead. Now, one of the screwy theories of the resurrection is that, well, Christ, you know, he just passed out on the cross and the cool tomb, you know, revived him. Well, that's silly and stupid. It's called the swoon theory. Yeah, and now that you have the strength. And here's the other thing. you got to understand something about the Romans. The Romans were experts at this. And there, there are reasons they were expert. At a Roman soldier, if you were ordered to kill someone and you didn't, guess who took their place? You did. They knew their job. These guys were professionals. Those people that crucified Christ were professionals at what they did. They knew how to make sure that person was dead. And not only that, they thrust a spear into his side to pierce the heart. So you got a guy who's got a pierced heart. He's lost a significant portion of blood. He's been beaten. He just comes back to consciousness and gets up and unwraps himself. Which, by the way, he was bound head to foot with what? Linen wraps. And then he, then he <laughs> takes that mass of stone, which some say weighed about a ton, pushed it out of the way, beat up two Roman soldiers, and snuck out. No, I'm saying, I'm saying yeah. that's what you would have to say. Oh. How did he get out of the tomb? Oh. All right. Those two Roman soldiers had a lot of questions to answer. They did. How in the world did you faint dead away and wake up and the body's gone? And not only that, but they saw the angel. Yeah. Plus the rock was moved. And the rock was moved. religious experience. Yeah. The burial is important because the burial proves that Christ was really, really dead. His body was prepared for burial. Nicodemus and the guy came down with 100 pounds of spices to wrap the body. Now, they would wrap you pretty tight. Christ was dead. He was really dead. And then we have the resurrection. The resurrection, interesting, is probably one of the most significantly proven events of history. People like to poo-poo it. But when you look at the evidence, and Lee Strobel did that in A Case for Faith and a couple other books, where he went out and he says, I'm going to prove this resurrection is just a bunch of hogwash. And the more he studied it, the more he realized it wasn't, and he became a Christian. Um, when you look at the resurrection, how, by the way, what, what is the significance of the resurrection? What did the resurrection prove? Did he gather? The sacrifice was accepted. It was an acceptable sacrifice. It was accepted by God. 
and it proves that Christ was what? God. The Son of God. I mean, you know, the average man just does not decide, oh, I'm going to resurrect myself. He was the only one that ever has. He was the only one that ever has. And it proves that he was the Son of God and it proves that his death was accepted by God. It proved that what he said was true, right? What did Christ say? I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to take it up again. The Jews knew that too, and that's why they went to such great extents to make sure, to make sure it didn't happen. Yep. That's what they thought. It proves that we will be resurrected as well. Why, why is that? Well, Paul makes that argument in 1 Corinthians 15, right? In Adam all die, and Christ all are made alive. If Christ died, we died with him. That's the whole picture of Romans 6, 7. We'll be raised with him. It puts the nails in Satan's coffin. It proves that he will be destroyed. What's Satan's greatest weapon? Death. What has Christ done? Destroyed the power of death. What are some of the proofs of the resurrection? How, how do you know the resurrection really happened? Well, let's think about it a minute. How many people thought Christ was going to rise again? Zero. No, there were some. Really? There were some that, that thought he might. Who were they? Mary? Nope. Who are the ones that were worried about it? The Jews. Jews. They said, wait a minute, this guy said he was going to rise again from the dead. We better make sure he stays dead. But they were looking at it thinking that the uh, disciples were going to steal it away. But, but here's the thing. The only people that were worried about any kind of supposed resurrection event were who? The religious leaders. In fact, they're the ones that got Pilate to send down a guards, and to seal the tomb. This was, they were the only ones that, so, you know, some people say, well, the problem is the disciples were so, were so overcome with the notion that Christ would rise again from the dead that they just, they, 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 they hallucinated. They thought they saw him and they came up with this concept. Now, now wait a minute. Were the disciples looking for Christ to rise again? No. No. They were scared to death. Because they were scared out of their mind. The week they, figured they, was next. They, they were hiding in the upper room. They were scared. They thought they were next. And if you remember the account of Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, Christ picks up these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And what, did the, what were the guys saying? Haven't you been in Jerusalem? The Messiah, the one we thought the Messiah is dead. I mean, these guys were acting like it was the end of the world. They did not tell Christ, well, it's the third day and he's coming back. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they said, we thought he was the one. And these guys, and you got to understand, they were in deep depression. And Christ had to expound to them all that should have been done. That was done in Scripture. Look, nobody was looking for Christ to rise again. So this notion that somehow their anticipation of this event caused them to see things is ludicrous because none of the evidence in the scripture points to that. They were not looking for a resurrection. That's the last thing they were looking for. But even if they were, it's kind of a stretch to say that 11 people plus all the women plus the 500 people 
Like, like all a mass hallucination. I saw yeah, the same a thing. Hallucination of the same person, the same region, same time period. You take any court. Event. Not an ever doubting Thomas that says, "I won't believe it till I see it." Nail prints in his hands and feet. He said, "Touch me." Yeah, I mean, stop at any court where you have six hundred witnesses, all non-colluding witnesses. In other words, they're not talking to each other. And they all say the same thing. How would you as a judge in a court take that? Yeah. It's not like they all got together and made up a story. And not only that, you have hostile witnesses there too. Look. Who did he appear to? He appeared to the guards. Were they, were they for or against Christ? They were uninterested. They were not interested, but they were probably against he appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the other women. He appeared on the road to Emmaus. He showed up to the ten disciples. And then he showed up to 500 at one time. Everybody saw him. And see, here's the thing. Here's the other big thing to understand. What the History Channel and Discovery Channel and National Geographic Channel want you to believe is they want you to believe that Christ was this good teacher. He went around Palestine, done some nice things. Um, supposedly, people thought he might have been the miracle worker, a messiah. But he got tangled up in politics and wound up on the cross, crucified. And his followers were just, they were devastated by this, this turn of events. They didn't know what to do. And they tried to piece together this whole concept. They thought he was the Messiah. And so you have Peter with an idea, and you've got John running amok, and you've got Paul over here with something else. And so what happened is they came up with this legendary account of Christ's life and fabricated these, these legends about the miracles that he did, like George Washington and the cherry tree or whatever. And they created these myths and it propagated these myths as true, and that's how Christianity started. You ever watch a TV show where that's the basic idea? Well, here's the problem with that. Okay? Here's the problem with that. When was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which talk about the resurrection, when were they written? Quite a few years later. How many years later? Well, John, that was... Well, John's the longest. The longest. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written within 30 years of the events. Maybe within 20 years of the event. Depending on which one came yeah. first. What would be true about that then? There'd be people alive out there. There were thousands of people alive who could corroborate the events in the book. You're not talking about an account, a legendary account, that pops up 400 years after somebody's life. You're talking about a gospel like Mark that was written when people could pick up Mark, they could read it and say, you know, I was there when he did that miracle. I remember when he fed that 5,000. I remember Aunt What's-Her-Face had some of that fish that she said was really good stuff. I remember that. This, this is not fabricated lies. These books, these accounts were written within the lifetimes of people that were contemporary with the event. And what do you not find in history? You don't find anybody contesting these books. 
Do you find any historical context where people say this stuff didn't happen? From that time span. No, you don't. That would be like a... And if you were a Jewish religious leader and the horrible thing happened and this, this thing's taken off about the supposed resurrection of the Messiah, what would you do if you could? That was something I wanted to bring up. I'd trot down to this tomb, roll the stone away, and show the rotting corpse. And say, what resurrection? The problem is, when he went down to the tomb, what happened? There wasn't anything there. But do you realize, too, the resurrection, it stopped those religious leaders dead in their tracks for a while. I mean, they stopped. You realize... Forty days later, Peter got up and preached a message and over 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. Now, so those 3,000 people were contemporary with the events and a Christ exactly. priest, and Peter preached the resurrection, and you can bet your sweet bippy that if Christ had not risen from the dead, those people could have walked down around the city, down to the garden tomb, and showed you where he was buried. Where, where are the religious leaders that day? Where are they renouncing what happened? I, I look at the events of, as we've studied this, and I think there was something in that resurrection, even to his distractors, that set them back on their heels. Well, they, well remember what they told the soldiers. Tell, tell, the, tell your leader that the disciples came and stole the, stole the body, and we'll put in a good word for you so that you don't get into trouble. What couldn't they do? Produce the body. All they had, all the religious leaders had to do to kill Christianity was produce the body. And Christianity's over. Christianity's over. And you can bet that they, and by the way, there's some other, you know, whack job that comes along and says, well, you got to understand, they, 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 they mistook the tomb. They went to the wrong tomb. That was the problem. You know, Mary went to the wrong tomb. You know, all, all the religious had, leaders had to do was do what? Go to another one. Go to the right tomb. And how do you know what the right tomb was? Well, what tomb has the two guards in front of it with the Roman seal on the outside? You can find the right tomb. This was not the case of mistaken tomb identity. When you look at the resurrection from every angle, every conceivable angle, and you come up with every screwball, nut job theory that people have put forth, it is easily, it's easily squashed by the evidence in Scripture. Well, so it'd be like the Holocaust. The There's people who deny the Holocaust, but yeah. when you do that, you have every single war veteran who witnessed that jumping saying, no, I saw it. Yeah. You see every people who were part of it are still there yep. saying, no. Yeah, they still live, yeah. You know, somebody says, well, I know, the disciples came and stole the body. Well, the disciples weren't expecting his resurrection, number one. The disciples were a bunch of ragtag bums going up against the green berets of the day. What chance would they have had to overpower the Roman guards? Zero. And not only that, but what did all 11 of those guys die as? And nobody said, ah, yeah, we just made it up. We just made it up. It was just a story. All of them went to their 
graves believing what? Jesus rose again. And they were going to die for that. All of them, except John who died in his old age. Every one of them gave up their life for what? The resurrection of Christ. They died for that. This is not somebody who sits back. You know, the, the idea on the History Channel is somehow the disciples and the apostles got in this back room, the smoke-filled back room, and they concocted this whole new religion. They all died as martyrs. It's hard to believe. Now, I can believe one or two of them maybe dying as a martyr to pull it off, but 11 guys? And not only that, but it was far beyond the 11. There were many hundreds of thousands of people that went to, the, to their deaths believing Jesus rose again from the dead. And they weren't even looking for it to start out with. And then, and then they say, well, he went to the wrong tomb. Well, no, he didn't go to the wrong tomb. Mary's not going to get the wrong tomb. And if she had gone to the wrong tomb, what could the religious leaders have done? <coughs> go to the right one. Nobody could do that. The swoon theory. Oh, he just passed out on the cross. Well, you've got professional executioners who know a dead body when they see one. They made sure he was dead by piercing his heart with a spear. All right. Christ had massive blood loss. He's wrapped tight in linens as, as are like a mummy with 100 pounds of spices stuffed in there. He's stuck inside a tomb with a, with a one-ton stone on the front, guarded by Roman soldiers. And he wakes up, unwraps the wrappings, and pushes the stone out of the way and just walks out. That's right. You know, what kind of silliness is that? Here's the point, folks. When you, when you look at all of the screwy, again, when you look at all the screwy theories, trying to explain away the resurrection, every one of them is shot down very clearly. What this says. And what Peter says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen from the dead, you are to be of all men pitied. If there was no, and Paul says, if there was no resurrection of the dead, I would not be going through what I'm doing. And these people here, folks, were contemporary with the events. This is not stuff that happened 40, 50, 200, you know, 200 300 years later. There were people alive that remembered and saw and were primary witnesses to the events. There were people on the day of Pentecost that were saved that remember the three hours of darkness. They were there through it. This is not cunningly devised fables. The crucifixion, and this is the big thing, the empty tomb. Christianity is the only religion where the founder's tomb is empty. That's it. You know where Buddha's buried? You know where Confucius is buried? You know the tomb of Christ? There's no body. We serve a risen Savior, not a dead one. And how do you, how do you explain uh, the disciples? Here's Peter, Mr. Chicken. And what is he on the day of Pentecost? He stands up in front of Jerusalem and boldly tells them what? You crucified your own Messiah. Now, he's either on drugs or something happened to him. These guys were shaken behind closed doors and now they're out boldly proclaiming Christ. What changed? Christ showed up. Yeah. 
and they got the Holy Spirit. The Tsun theory, we have the theft theory, the hallucination theory. Look, all of these are just screwy things. And then, of course, after 40 days, what did Christ do? He rose into heaven. What's he doing there now? Waiting on us. Standing at the right hand of the Father, making intercession. Intercession for us. There's coming a day in which he's going to come back. That was the promise in his resurrection, right? Why are you looking up? The same Jesus who went up is going to come again. Now some people say, yeah, he'll come back in the sense of coming back in our hearts. That's the liberal kind of gushy stuff you hear. How did Christ ascend? Figuratively, spiritually? No, he ascended physically. How's he coming back? Yeah. When? Don't know. coming back. It's interesting. Um, when you look at the scripture, Christ is the most compelling figure in all the Bible. He's the one that the Old Testament points to. He's the fulfillment of all the prophecies. He's the prototokos, the, the premier one of all of God's creation. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's the judge. Who's going to condemn the lost to the lake of fire? Jesus. Not the Father. Why? Because what did Jesus say? The Father's given all judgment to the Son. Son. We've only been able to scratch the surface in the life of Christ here. Hopefully, you know. I remember somebody was talking about John MacArthur about his preaching. He says, you know, since he started preaching in 1969, he spent 28 of his 40 years preaching through the Gospels. 12 years through Matthew. I think he spent about 11 years in Luke or, not, or something like that. He's now preaching through Mark through John in five or six years. Um, he says, I find Christ the most compelling figure in all of history. And the more I study Christ, the more in love I become. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.